0: Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvallotton.com. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing all over the world. Thank you that you're still in charge. Thank you that you're still in charge of everything, The God... You're the God of the heavens and the earth, Lord. We thank you that you have initiated your response to us, and Lord, we just we bless this day, we bless this time, and we pray for courage, wisdom, and strength. Amen. Amen. Well, it's really good to be here. I was thinking about you're preaching every few weeks. It's you. You get out of practice. I, I, uh, you know, when you're preaching four or five times a week, quite different. Um, I wanted to just talk about uh, part two of the War of the Worlds. Uh, about five weeks ago, I, I shared a message called the War of the Worlds. I'm going to talk just a little bit about that as far as the, just revisiting the, the message. And by the way, how many of you heard Eric's message last week? Yeah. I thought that was one of the most profound messages I've ever heard on the, the whole how we navigate the season. I thought his example of The boundaries of a game and playing inside those boundaries. I thought it was profound. I listened to it again, and uh, I just want to say that was a great message. If you're listening today and you didn't hear last week's message, just get on Bethel TV or YouTube and re listen to that message. I really feel like that's a profound prophetic message for us today. Um, uh, About uh, several, in December, I had an encounter where the Lord talked to me and shared with me for five straight days this word providence. I woke up every morning with the word providence on my mind. And I'm not going to reshare that message, but I'm just going to take pieces of that, talk about what I feel is happening, our response, and the help that God's sending us. Um, providence is the, the idea that we live we, the idea that we live in free will and that God initiated free will in the garden. God's the, God, God's the guy that put two trees in the garden. Yes, the enemy, the devil, Lucifer, in, he encouraged, he, he deceived Adam and Eve into eating the second tree, but how many know that God planted both trees in the garden? It shows God's love for free will. And by the way, Humans were not the first people to get free will. How many understand that one-third of the angels fell because they had free will? God loves free will. How many understand without free will, there would be no love? God could program you to like him, but the only way you can love, love requires free will. And so we typically live in free will, but every once in a while in history, God overrides free will with sovereignty, in which God God takes over free will. And God says, no, listen, I don't care what you want. This is what's going to happen. And God begins to determine history and shape history. He, if you will, has an override button. We see it uh, over and over in history. When I say over and over, I'm not talking about that it happens every day, but it it happens every so many hundred years. We see it in the days of Noah, when God finally says, that's enough. No more free will right now. And God wipes out the world, and starts over with Noah. We see it in the days, and, and, I, and I call that those seasons, seasons of providence, when God just steps in, he, he, he if, if you will, he makes the exception to the rule, and he said, we'll be doing it my way in this season and time. Uh, there are three heavens that the Bible talks of. The Bible speaks of, Genesis, in Genesis 1, that God created the heavens and the earth, and we call that the first heaven. It's not just the visible kingdom, but it's all that has to do with the cosmos, the, this, this realm that we live in, the first heaven. Paul made a statement that he knew a man who was taken to the third heaven, and he saw things that were indescribable. So we know the way that we count the heavens is that Paul said, I knew a man who went to the third heaven. So if there's a third heaven, there must be a second and a first. So we count the first heaven as God created the heavens and the earth. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And listen to this phrase. In the heavenly places. Principalities and powers in the heavenly places. How many know there's no demons in God's heaven? We call that the second heaven. And what I'm getting at is this, is that when we, received, when we were born, we were born into the first heaven. But when we were born again, how many know we were raised up and seated in heavenly places? And just so you know which heaven with Christ. We were seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Are you following me so far? And what I'm getting at is this, is that when we have a first heaven problem, we, we can't solve a first heaven problem with the first heaven solution if it's a second heaven, if the second heaven is initiating the problem. I'm saying, if the devil is the one initiating the problem, how many, of you, how many of you know you're not going to solve that with the first heaven solution if you have a second heaven problem? You need a third heaven solution. He put us far above all principalities and powers and every name that's ever been named in this, I mean, in this world and the one to come, in this age and the one to come, and he put everything under his feet. It's a beautiful metaphor for the enemy is under your feet. And of course, the challenge that we've talked about here for years and years, and Bill initiated this, is you're, we're living in the first heaven and the third heaven. Are you praying from heaven towards From earth towards heaven or from heaven towards earth. Now, when you have an issue, I'd like to propose that trials, you know, James chapter 1, considered all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the test of your faith produces endurance. How many know it's not testing your character, it's testing your faith? Let me say that again. Trials don't test your character, they first test your faith and people are like, I'm in a trial, God's put me through a trial. I would like to propose there are three sources of trials. <laughs> the ones we want are the ones that God initiates because he's testing our faith. But I'd like to suggest that not every trial God proposed for you. Sometimes we create our own trials. That's called the spirit of stupid. <laughs> How many have ever had the spirit of stupid jump on you and you're like, God's taking me through a trial? It's like, no, no, you took you through a trial. God can use the trial, but he didn't initiate it. How many know there are trials that the enemy creates? How many know that's not a trial you want to go through either, because how many know God didn't initiate that trial? When we go through a first heaven problem, the first question is, who's initiated the challenge? Like, in other words, if God's created a trial, I want to get under that trial, and I want to grow in my faith. That trial has a purpose. If the, initiate, the enemy's initiated that trial, how many you know, I don't want to get under that trial. I want to submit to God and resist the devil. If I've created the trial, I need some wisdom because this trial, is, has, it, it, it may have a good outcome, but how many you know, I'm the one who created it? The question becomes, when there's a problem in the earth, now let's make it bigger. Who initiated that? Because how many of you know, I don't want to resist something that God's initiated. I don't want to be under something the enemy's initiated, and I need a ton of wisdom for the ones I initiated. There's an interesting story in the days of Moses. Now, let me just take you back a little bit before Moses to the days of Abraham. Abraham has an encounter with God. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a father to many nations. And he gives him this amazing prophecy about legacy. It's an amazing prophecy. But it, then he goes, in the middle of this amazing prophecy, how many of you have ever had God do this to you? He goes, there's going to be a little glitch. It's just going to be 400 years. I mean, no, just 400 years. From eternity that seems like that. And it's going to be for 400 years, the people are going to be, the Israelites, your people, the people I just said are going to be amazing, they're going to be in bondage for 400 years. Until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, then I'm going to free my people in the 400th year. So history goes on, life goes on, And then, you know the story, Joseph comes into Egypt during a famine. He's in slavery, then he's in prison, and then he finally makes his way to the palace. And the king has a dream about skinny calves and fat calves, fat calves eating the skinny calves, seven fat calves even eating seven skinny calves. And Joseph interprets the dream as seven great years of plenty, Seven years of famine. You remember the story? And Joseph says to Pharaoh, if I were you, I would put away 20% of all the grain for seven years, and then I would sell it back to the people in the eighth year. Joseph, the king, says, you're smart. You can be over all of Egypt. He puts them all over all of Egypt. And in one way, Joseph saves the world. Except for this one little problem. Joseph doesn't tell the people that there's gonna be seven good years and seven bad years. Joseph only tells Pharaoh. So Pharaoh taxes the people one-fifth or 20% for seven years. He creates these huge grain silos. And in the eighth year, Joseph, Pharaoh, begins to sell the grain back to the people. And by the time they finish the fifth year, they have spent all the people of Egypt have spent all of their money, and then they begin to give all of their land to Pharaoh. and in the sixth year, they come to Joseph, they say, "We have no land. We have no money." And Joseph says, "Then sell me your souls." Wow. And it says that all of Egypt was enslaved to Pharaoh. Joseph enslaved all of Egypt. He took a first world country and he made it a third world country in 14 years. When Joseph dies, the book of Exodus opens with this phrase, and there rose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And what did he do? He enslaved all the Israelites. How many know, whatever you sow, you will reap. Joseph enslaved the Israelites and the Israelites No, Joseph enslaved the Egyptians, and the Egyptians in the next generation enslaved the Israelites. For 320 years, remember, God told Abraham, in the 400th year, I will free my people. For 320 years, the people were in slavery. Can you imagine being the people praying but you're under the providence of God. You're in slavery by the decree of God. In the 320th year, the Pharaoh gets this idea to kill all the firstborn male children, Israelite children. Just decides to kill them for no seeming reason. Overpopulation, he only kills the males. What's happening? I'd like to suggest that there's a third heaven decree. I'm going to set the people free in the the 400th year. But the enemy knows the decree of the Lord. I'd say the enemy knows your prophecies better than you do. And he realizes there's a third heaven promise, and he wants to break the third heaven promise. And he begins to try to destroy all the firstborn males, trying to wipe out what he knows is coming, a deliverer. Moses is born around the 320th year. And you know, he's raised in Pharaoh's house through a series of miracles that you probably know, you've seen, you've read it in the Bible, or you've watched the movie. Pharaoh ends up in, uh, Moses ends up in the Nile. The princess, the Pharaoh's daughter, takes him as her own. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. (laughs) Pharaoh has no idea what's happening here. The devil inspires Pharaoh to kill the firstborn male children, but the Lord ends up taking the deliverer, putting him in Pharaoh's house. Why? Because how many understand that a a person who's in slavery internally cannot free people who are in slavery externally? So it's necessary for Moses to be raised in Pharaoh's house so he knows how to think like a king, because he's about to be a king. He's about to be the leader of a nation. So he is mentored by Pharaoh. How many know there are things that Pharaoh taught him that he actually needed to learn? There are things you knew that you needed to know before you met the Lord that actually play into your destiny. And God knew you before you knew him. And he was working on your future before you ever met him. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house, as you know. He thinks like a king. How do kings think? You can always tell how close you are to the palace by what you do, how you how you respond to injustice. Let me say that again. You can always tell how close you live to the palace by how you respond to injustice. When you go, that's not my problem. How many know you don't think like a king? When you go, that's overwhelms me. How many know you don't think like a king? So Moses sees injustice. He's forty years old, and you know the story. He sees his the Egyptians oppressing the Israelites. He tries to do something about it. He kills an Egyptian soldier and so on and so forth. But what's the problem? Moses has the right plan. He has the right training. But he's... He is 40 years too early. You ever been 40 years too early? You ever had the right plan? You're prepared with the right equipment? You have the right vision? but you're 40 years too early? He's 40 years too early. Remember, because God said in the 400th year, I'm gonna let you go, but he tries to free the people in the 360th year. He's 40 years too early. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He goes out into the desert. All his confidence is gone. Finally, in the 400th year, he meets a bush, not George. <laughs> the bush is burning. I mean, this is how bad he is, how, how low he is mentally. He's talking to a bush, and it's talking back. And the Lord says to him, I've seen the iniquity. I've seen the oppression of my people. And the story goes on, and God says, I send you. And Moses says to him, says to God, I, I'm not... Listen, you got the wrong guy. I don't speak too well. I got no confidence. How many of you know, sometimes when you feel ready, you aren't ready? And how many how many you know, sometimes when you feel weak, God goes, now I can use you. Yeah. I am stunned by how God uses people in their weakness and not in their strength. I was thinking about, I'm, I'm off track here for a minute, but I was thinking about how God chooses the apostles and the metron he put them over. He chooses Paul, the apostle Paul, who is an expert in Jewish law, right? Trained in the greatest schools of, of Israel. And God goes, okay, Paul, you're gonna be apostle to the Gentiles, who you know nobody, nothing about, and who you persecuted for your first 40 years. Why doesn't he put him over the Jews? He knows too much. Sometimes you just know too much. And God says, I'm not going to use you where you're educated. I'm going to use you where you don't know anything. He takes Moses. And Moses says, hey, you know, I know Pharaoh. He's a little stubborn. What do I do if he doesn't listen to me? And first, I love this part. God says, Moses says to God, and who should I say sent me? And God goes, I am. And Moses said, you you got another name? He said, I am that I am. That'll clear it up. (laughs) And let's fast forward. He ends up in front of Pharaoh with his brother Aaron. They throw down a staff. This has all been pre-planned. God told him the whole plan. Throw down a staff. He throws down a staff. It becomes a snake. But what he didn't realize is that the sorcerers also can do magic tricks. And they throw down their staff, and it becomes two snakes. What I'm getting at is that when God moves the enemy can't stop it, so he tries to dilute it with other snakes. And you gotta figure out what snake is God's. What happens most of the times is Christians run away because of the snakes. And they go, God can't be in this. And I would propose it's the 400th year God's thrown down his staff and it's become a snake. And the enemy can't stop the snake of God. You hear me? So he tries to pollute it with other snakes. He tries to pollute moves of God, God delivering, God delivering us from racism, God delivering us from perversion, God delivering us from transgenderism, God delivering us from Im- immorality, God's thrown down his staff. The, Im- the in- iniquity of the Amorites is complete and God goes, I'm done with this, and God gets involved. But how many you know, the enemy counters with other snakes, and pretty soon you can't find the snake, so you just run away, I don't know what to do, and I'm saying you need discernment to find the God snake. I propose that God has initiated a move. I think I need to say that one more time. This is a third heaven move that has a second heaven resistance because of a first heaven problem. God's on the move. There's nothing to be afraid of. I had a, a dream, an intense dream last two, a week and a half ago in which I was in a war shooting and I was killing people and they were killing me. You know, how many have had crazy dreams? I have crazy dreams. People say, I have bad dreams all the time. You should be me. (laughs) I can't even tell you how many times I wake up sweating a week. And when I woke up, the Lord gave me Isaiah 34. I'm not going to read it today, but you should read it. It's it's one of those tough passages about God initiating a war against evil. My heart was pounding and the Lord said to me, do you trust me? I said, yes I do. He said, nothing you care about will be harmed. Nothing you care about will be harmed. I have initiated a war against evil. I didn't say against people, I said against evil. I think when you make people, in fact Bill shared this, I think it was last week, when you make people the target, you play into the second heaven. I wanna tell you that the Lord is not a Democrat and he's not a Republican. Whenever you demonize a people group, you've missed the point and you've played into the two snakes and you haven't caught the snake God laid down. God is all about delivering people, not killing people. Does God kill people if he feels like it's strategic because death looks different to God? I want to talk a little bit about authority In Matthew 28, and I know this is some repeat, probably the whole message is repeat. Jesus said after his resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Can we just say that together? All authority. I want us to say this again. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go, and make disciples of all nations. The point he's making, the word, the word therefore is there, for, he's saying, because I now have all authority, you have authority to make disciples of a few nations. No, of all nations. How many know it's the extension of, the, of God's word to Abraham? This is not a new passage. This is the promise to Abraham. You will be a father to many nations. This is the extension, this is not a new word. This is the extension of the promise of Abraham of which we are children of Abraham because Abraham was the father of faith. And my question is in the middle of trial, do you believe it? Because I propose that the two snakes are there to take away your authority. Let me say that again. That the enemy is throwing down snakes to make you feel powerless. To make you feel powerless, but how you feel is not how you are. I want to talk a little bit about how authority works. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 8? This is a profound story. Verse 5 Jesus enters Capernaum, and a centurion, remember, a centurion's a Roman guy, right? Supposedly doesn't know the Lord. A centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And now, let's, 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 do you hear what just happened? We're going to read just a little bit more. The centurion has a sick servant. He loves a servant. He said, Lord, I I need you to heal my servant. And the Lord says, Jesus says, I'll come to your house and we'll do that right now. He said, you don't even need to do that. No, you're a busy guy. Just send your word. If you just speak the word, my servant will be well. Now, let's think through the centurion's idea of how he came to the conclusion that Jesus does not need to go to his house. Are you following me? Remember, this is a Roman. He doesn't know the Bible. He said, for I am a man under authority. I'm under Caesar. Therefore, when I say to a man, go, he goes. He doesn't go necessarily because he's afraid of me, but all of Caesar's authority is rest in in my word, therefore when you speak healing, my servant will be healed. Now, you would think that the centurion is thinking, I know you're a busy guy, I can see you got a movement going here, you can just send one of your disciples, because I'm a man of authority, and I understand that if you send Peter, he carries the same authority I carry, and I know you're busy, I'm busy, I can't do everything, so, just send Peter or John, Matthew, you know, I, just send one of the guys because I know they'll carry your authority, my servant will get healed. That's where it seems like he's going. But instead, his rationale is third heaven. <laughs> he says, You don't have to come to my house because if you speak a word, I know my servant will be healed. And this is the reason I can see that you're a man under authority. I'm a man under authority, and my authority allows me to send somebody to do my bidding, which is the king's bidding. Are you with me? Who does the centurion think is going to go out and do his bidding if he doesn't send one of his disciples? Are you with me? Jesus' response tells you, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel, and the guy's a Roman. He's saying, I understand that when you speak a word, there are entities in the other dimension that they go, like I send my servant, you send your servants, and you just speak a word, and the angels go out and carry out your words. Yeah. Psalms 103 verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. I'd like to suggest that it is the angels that answer your prayers and fulfill your prophecies. Okay, that wasn't... Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 says, But to which of the angels did he say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who inherit salvation? Are they not all ministering spirits sent sent out to render service? to all those who receive inherit salvation? I'd like to suggest that when we used to sing when I was a little boy, angels watching over me, my Lord. Angels are watching over you. It's not a song, it's a reality. Yep. I remember years ago, when we first moved here, we were living in a little apartment, we had just lost everything. It was, it was very dark times, a very dark time. And uh, I was going through intense warfare. Probably, uh, probably six nights out of seven, I was having terrible demonic dreams, waking up in cold sweats, finally to the place where our little apartment had two bedrooms. I literally was sleeping in the second bedroom, so I wouldn't wake Kathy because I was pacing the floor at three o'clock in the morning, just warring with my Bible, praying. And I had met Bob Jones, at a conference during that season. In fact, the way I met him is that Bill said, hey, I'd like you to go pick up Bob Jones for the conference. (laughs) Such a funny story, I've told it so many times. I was so nervous, I'd seen Bob Jones on film only. And, uh, And so Bill said, go pick up Bob Jones and Larry Randolph. Well, first of all, he said, go pick up Bob Jones from the airport. So I go pick Bob Jones up, I'm 20 minutes early, and for whatever reason, which never happens in Reading for all of us who fly, the plane is earlier than that. Wow. And Bob is, sitting, is standing outside with his two huge suitcases. And, he, and, I, and so I, I pull in, and I, I'm like, oh my goodness, he's here already. How is that happening? And I get out, I get out of the car, and I say, Mr. Jones, I'm, uh, gosh, you got here early. He goes, you're late. You're late. He doesn't say hi. He goes, you're late. You're late. I said, no, no, I'm actually early. You're late. Okay, so I get his... Uh, his suitcase is in the car, and he get him in the front seat, and I'm, I'm driving to the hotel, driving him to the hotel, and he's talking the entire time. And he's saying things like, hey, you ever been to the third heaven? I'm like, oh yeah, all the time, you know, hang out there. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And he's start talking about angels and third heaven experiences, and I'm like, I'm so nervous, I can't even think. You ever been so nervous, you can't think of what to say? So I just keep saying, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'm just <laughs> lying my face off. I have No idea what he's talking about at all. (laughs) So we get to the conference, da-da-da. The uh, the next morning, I'm supposed to pick him and Larry Randolph up for the conference. And Bill says, you know, please get there early. So I go to the hotel at 9.30. I have to have him here by 10. And I get there and Bob Jones is standing out on the, he's standing out waiting for me. He goes, you're late. Said, no, 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 It doesn't start till 10. You're late. (laughs) I'm still so nervous. And I said, uh, so he, he, get, he goes to get in the car. I said, we have to wait for Larry. Oh, not Larry. Larry, always late. Oh, Larry, always late. And he starts like, talking about how late Larry is. And he doesn't want to be in the same car with Larry because Larry's always late and Bob wants to be early. And I don't know what to do because my boss said, pick them both up. So anyway, so he's going on how late Larry is. And so anyway, 10, I mean, 9.45. And Bob, no, just pay, he's just pacing back and forth. And he doesn't really walk. He kind of waddles. And and he's he's mumbling to himself, Larry always late, Larry always late. Five minutes to ten, Larry, I I have knocked on the door, I have called several times, no answer. Ten o'clock, now Bob is livid. Ten, fifteen, Larry opens the door, his shirt's buttoned wrong, his hair's everywhere. It looks like he slept in his clothes. He goes, "Ah, I had a rough night. Bob Jones looks at him and goes, yeah, last night you had a demon in your room, didn't you? Larry goes, yeah, all night. I was wrestling with him. He goes, yeah, I knew that. Larry says, how, how did you know that? He says, hey, he came in my room last night and told me you got the wrong room, Larry, next door. <laughs> True story. So the next... <laughs> That's the craziest story. Bob is the craziest person. I, I grew to really love him. He... Uh, when this conference was over, I took him back to the, to the, uh, to the airport, and I get him all out. By then, I'd been with him four days and kind of figured out that he's, really, he's got a real sarcastic sense of humor, which worked really well for me, and we got to kind of connect, and I get out of the car. I get him all organized. I get him the, into the airport, and he says, he goes, give me your phone number. If you ever in trouble, I calls you. Did you get that? Give me your phone number. If you're ever in trouble, I'll call you." (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay. So I wrote it down on a piece of scrap paper and I give it to him, I think he's never gonna call. And then I'm going through all these dreams. I'm having these crazy dreams, demonic things. They probably go on for three months. And and, and at six o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. And I'm in the second bedroom and Kathy gets up, answers the phone, she says, Bob Jones is on the phone. I said, Bob Jones is on the phone. She said, yep, Bob Jones on the phone. I said, nah. She goes, I'm telling you, Bob Jones on the phone. So I pick up the phone. He goes, eh, how you doing? I said, uh, I'm having a tough, tough week. He goes, yeah, I told you. She ever ever in trouble. I called you. <laughs> and then he tells me about my reoccurring dream. Tells me the entire dream that I've been having for three months. Every point of it. And he goes, yep, 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 it's bad but the Lord gonna send you angel help. Wow. You ever seen an angel? He said, uh, mm, nah, no, no, <laughs> by now I'm telling the truth, no. <laughs> he go, ah, the Lord gonna send you angel help. I said, okay, thank you. For the next two nights, I had two more demonic dreams. And then the third night after Bob gave me that word, I woke up because we were ha- I felt like we were having an earthquake and I wake up and I, I'm in the second bedroom it's, I think it's around five in the morning, and the, my bed is shaking, like just like shaking violently. And I'm like, oh, I've been in many earthquakes, California. And I, I, I wake up, and I look up, and there's sunlight in the room, and I, there's a chandelier in the, in the bedroom that is perfectly still. And you know how you're not all the way awake? And I'm like, that's weird, chandelier is fine, but my bed is violently shaking. And I look over my shoulder like this, and there's a man standing there. And he's like as big as maybe like Shaq. He's, I don't know, seven foot maybe. I don't know. I'm laying on my back. He's huge. He's got no shirt on. He's, he's looks like, he looks like a, a bodybuilder. He, he's got long black hair, and he looks like he's Native American, like an Indian. And he's got coal black eyes, and he's got, he's got wrestling, black wrestling tights on. And he's got his arms crossed, and he's staring at me. And, and, I, and I look up and I'm like, and I say to myself, someone broke in my house. And then I realize that my bed is shaking and I say in my mind, that must be an angel. And when I said that must be an angel, he vaporized in front of me. So I called Bob Jones and I said, Bob, I think I had my first angel visitation last night. He goes, yeah. He said... Did he, he he said, did he look like an Indian? I said, yeah. He goes, did, 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 did he, did he, was he wearing wrestling tights? I said, yeah. He goes, he looked like a bodybuilder? I said, yeah. He said, well, he in a bad mood. Was he in a bad mood? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, that Michael, he always in a bad mood. That's what he said. That's Michael. He's always in a bad mood. And from that day on, my dreams, my tormenting dreams stopped. Turn to Daniel chapter (laughs) 9. Everybody's like, and the point of that is... See, five weeks ago, the last time I preached, I talked about the war of the worlds, and we talked about demons. Today I want to talk about angels. We got angel help. Yes. Daniel chapter 9, verse 21, we're going to skip around a little bit. While I was speaking in prayer, then the man, of, the, man, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness in the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have come now, I have come forth to give you insight and to give you understanding. Let's go down to verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said to me, don't be afraid, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstanding me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I have been left there with the kings of Persia. Do you understand when he's talking about the kings of Persia here, he's not talking about He's not talking about natural kings. He's talking about principalities. Now, before I go on any further, this is in response to Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied that the children of Israel would be in bondage in Babylon for 70 years. This is the 70th year. The previous chapter is Jeremiah, I'm sorry, is Daniel. Daniel was taken into captivity. I don't know, he's maybe 15? In the first year of captivity and he's lived through Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, his son, um, and um, Darius who put him in the lion's den and now he's working for Cyrus. Je- Jeremiah prophesied that in the 70th year a man named Cyrus, who wasn't born when Jeremiah prophesied this, would become king and would release the children of Israel. Daniel is reading Jeremiah. He realizes it's the 70th year, and he begins to pray into the prophecy. Did you get what I just said? He begins to pray into the prophecy. I need to tell you, just say that one more time. He's got a prophecy, but remember, for 70 years, he opens his window towards Jerusalem, and he prays towards Jerusalem for 70 years. Three times, was it three times a day? Now he realizes it's the 70th year, and he begins to pray for the freedom, for the fulfillment of the prophecy. And there's a war, are you with me? There's a war over the prophecy. There's a demonic battle to keep the prophecy from being fulfilled, and Daniel is praying, and he doesn't understand why they're not being released. And and Gabriel comes to him and says, You've asked for understanding why it's the 70th year, and yet you haven't been released. And he says, here's the understanding. We're in a war to free you now. And he says, and, and now he goes on to say, look at verse 19. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace with you, take courage, and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength, and said, may the Lord speak, for, my, for you have strengthened me. Previously, he says, I have no strength in me. I feel like I'm going to die. And he leans over, the angel leans over, and he strengthens him. And he says, you are a man of high esteem. You can stand courageously. And he said to him, do, do you not understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So go. For, uh, so I am going forth. And behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I tell you, I tell you what is inscribed in the writings of truth, speaking of Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70th year, yet there is no one who stands firmly against these forces except for Michael, get this, your prince. Except for Michael, your prince. Did you get that? He's saying to, to Gabriel is saying to Daniel, when you started praying, a prince was assigned to you, it's Michael the archangel there's only one prince fighting with me because you're the only one praying. Wow. Did you get that? He's saying, there's thousands of people, in Israelites, stuck in Babylon. But the only one helping me, Gabriel says, to free you against the prince of Persia and, and this, this other prince of Greece The only one helping me is Michael. You know why? Because you're the only one praying. In other words, there are a lot of unemployed angels. Acts chapter 12, we're gonna bring this into the New Testament. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being fervently made by the church to God. Remember, they had just lost James. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a light shone in the cell and struck Peter in the side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly. And his chains chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap up your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed through the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out along the one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting I want you to understand what was happening. They had lost James the same way. Herod had arrested James and killed him. This time, the church starts to pray. On the day that they were going to kill Peter, the angel comes just in time, undoes his shackles, out they go. And he goes, Peter goes to the house of John Mark, the person who wrote the book of Mark. At this time, John Mark is a young teenager. Peter ends up at the house. Rhoda answers the door, she's the servant girl. They're praying for Peter to be released, specifically praying for Peter to be released. When Peter knocks on the door, she comes to the door and she sees it's Peter and she gets so excited that she forgets to open the door. And she runs back in to where they're actually praying for Peter to be released. And she says to them, Peter's at the door. And they say, it can't be him. It must be his angel. I'm saying, you got to have a lot of angel experiences to think that the guy you're praying for, you have more faith that it's the angel of the guy you're praying for than it's Peter himself. And the question becomes, where is all the angel help? I don't have too much time... But in Matthew chapter 2, twice angels take Jesus, interrupt, start over, an angel interrupts Joseph's sleep. And in a dream, the angels are directing Joseph and Mary from place to place because Herod's trying to kill them. But it says this, in the midst of the dream, it says, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Here's where I'm going. I should have read the whole thing so you got the context. Prophets have spoken in the Old Testament about a savior who would be born, but the challenge is the prophets said that he would be born from four countries. So four prophets spoke that Jesus would come out of Egypt. One said he'd come out of Nazareth, another said he'd come out of Galilee. So the Lord actually uses angels to move Jesus around from town to town. Get this, specifically, so the words of the prophets will be fulfilled. (laughs) Did you get that? It, It actually says the reason they took him to Egypt is because one of the prophets prophesied out of Egypt. The next one is they take him The next angel in chapter, in verse 19, the angel of the Lord comes to him, appears to him in a dream, and says, go from Egypt to Nazareth. You know why? Because another prophet spoke, and this is in verse 23, and out of Nazareth will my son come. Another one said, out of Galilee my son will come. So the angel of the Lord is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets who said, he's coming out of here. No, he's coming out of here. No, he's coming out of here. So the prophets are literally the angels are literally moving Jesus around specifically to fulfill the words of the prophets. It says of Samuel, chapter three of 1 Samuel, and Samuel had favor with God, and God let none of his, none of his words fail or fall to the ground. How many you know when you pray and prophesy, you, are, you don't have to instruct angels They come to serve your prayers and fulfill your prophecies. When you're under authority, like Jesus was under authority, you don't have to send people. You send your prayers, and God sends the angels. (laughs) I wish I had more time to tell you some more stories. Stories like the Apostle Paul, who sends a handkerchief, to a demonized man, and the man gets free with a handkerchief. How did that happen? Because he didn't just send a hanky, he sent angels. How many know heaven acknowledges apostolic authority and hell recognizes it too? How many know you wanna be famous in heaven and feared in hell? What you think is going wrong, God has initiated. You just gotta find the right snake. God is breaking racism. He is breaking immorality. He is breaking, he is breaking I'm telling you, that we are in the middle of a cultural war in which God has stepped in and said, this is the 400th year, I will take it from here. You're going to make big mistakes if you start accusing men. I don't think men even know what they're doing. I don't think governors and presidents, and I include them all, of all countries, I don't think they even know what they're doing. The enemy is trying to stop God's move. He's he's killing babies. You get the idea. He's killing babies. He's creating violence. He's doing what he does, kill, steal, destroy. But how? many know, in the midst of that, there's another snake. There's another snake. And what I'm getting at is, you're going to be very fearful. You're either going to be very fearful or you're going to live in denial. But God wants you to live in faith, and he doesn't want Eric to be the only, buddy pray, only person praying. He doesn't want just Eric's angel involved. He, was, he doesn't want just Candace's angel involved. He doesn't want just Bill's angel involved. How many understand God has decreed something. There's a war in the second heaven because God has made a third heaven decree. What you think is evil, God is moving for good. God has decided to free people from Egypt all the way to the promised land. How many know the children of Israel got stuck In the wilderness and God goes, I got better than wilderness for you. Why don't you stand? If you're watching, are you with us here? Prayer shapes history. I guess there'll be a part three to this. (laughs) Prayer shapes history. God is on the move. We need to keep our heads in the clouds if you want to be any earthly good right now. You know when people say, his head's so in the clouds, he's no earthly good? The only way you're gonna be earthly good right now is to keep your head in the cloud. You get stuck in the second heaven, you're going to have lots of torment. You get stuck in the first heaven, you're going to be offended. You're going to be like, this is everybody's mad at each other. That's the plan. The plan is to thwart the plan of God by getting people to fight people. I'm like, let's get above the political spirit. Let's get above the religious spirit. Let's get above the offense. Let's get above all of that. And let's look from up here. I think the invitation, here's my prophetic declaration today. God said, I'm sorry, Jesus said, God said to, through Jesus, Jesus said to John, the apostle, Revelation 1. Here it is, prophetic word. Come up here. Did you hear it? This is a prophetic word. Come up here. Look from up here. It looks a lot different from up here. Lord, I pray that we would come up here, that we would have the wisdom, get this, from another age. Lord, that you would give our leaders, Eric, Candace, Bill, all of our leaders, that you would give our president, that you would give our governor, that you would give our mayors. Don't pray against your mayors and your governors. Pray for them. Don't pray at them, pray for them. Lord, we pray right now that they would be able to come up here that they would see things they've never seen, that they would hear things they've never heard, so they can do things they've never done. Lord, we pray that your snake would be the only snake in the fight. Lord, that you would give us discernment to follow the right snake. And we would know when to speak and when to be quiet. We would know what to pray, when to pray, and how to assign our prayers for angel help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvellton.com. Have an awesome day.